Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast, presented by SeatGeek, the best place to buy tickets. Download the SeatGeek app on your smartphone and save $20 off your first purchase by using promo code SOXMACHINE. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of October 15th, 2018. On this week's show, we start our 2018 season reviews with a look at the Chicago White Sox pitching staff. Patrick Nolan, P. Knowles, will join me to share our picks for starting pitcher of the year and reliever of the year, and we'll announce who you, the fans and listeners, chose and also dish out our individual grades, why the bullpen was better than you thought this season, and how aggressive should Rick Hunt be during the offseason in making pitching upgrades. But first, the championship series have started, and there are plenty of storylines to touch on as each series now heads to Los Angeles in the National League and Houston in the American League. Joining me is the co-host of the podcast and managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. The championship series already have been filled with a little bit of drama, uh, especially in the National League and in the American League. It's been pretty much about the offense uh, as both Houston and Boston are racking up a lot of runs, tormenting each other's bullpen. How do you like each championship series so far? It's kind of what I hope for, I think, you know, with two great teams looking like they, um, you know, deserved each other, deserved to be there. That's kind of what you wanted to see. Just big, uh, big moments, you know, no lead being safe, um, you know, because even with the uh, Verlander sale game, Verlander did have a blip in it. Uh, they were able to tie it up. Then, you know, Houston ran away. But, you know, both teams, I think, are kind of still feeling each other out. They can't really be too comfortable. And that's pretty cool. 
Yeah, let's start with the National League as the Dodgers and the Milwaukee Brewers are tied one game apiece. And it is a bit interesting because the beat reporters are there and there's a lot of information, especially flying on Twitter, uh, that I think is pretty interesting. And outside of Josh Hader and Brandon Woodruff, which what a moment that was for Woodruff hitting a home run off Clayton Kershaw. Uh, the Dodgers have been pounding the Brewers' bullpen. And these first two games in Milwaukee were one-run games in which Milwaukee had a sizable lead. And then they were holding on for dear life in game one uh, to win that game. And in game two, they had a 3 to nothing lead. And they eventually blow that lead, losing 4-3. to and we thought that Milwaukee's bullpen is the strength of this team, and it is, but is the strength of this bullpen just on one pitcher, and that one pitcher's Josh Hader? I don't think so. I mean, I think maybe Jeffress looks a little bit shaky. Uh, you know, Soria had the not great game. But uh, right now I think it's just more of a matter of just the number of pitchers they have to go through. I, I, it's, you know, we haven't really seen anything like this. We've seen it for maybe one game at a time where a pitcher – is pulled early and they have to kind of scrape by. But as an overarching strategy, it's still new ground. So I'm, I guess I'm kind of looking at this as like a test case and just kind of watching, uh, trying to come in with as a few preconceived notions as possible. Because I don't think, you know, when, when it comes to bullpenning and this idea, I'm not a huge fan of it aesthetically. Um, I, I prefer to watch, you know, like the Verlander sale start where, you know, Verlander, goes six and sale goes four but they i would ideally want to get six of them that's kind of more my style of game so it's not a whole lot of fun but you know it could be effective and that's why i like seeing the dodgers come back just to you know make it not seem so simple like oh all you have to do to not allow runs in the postseason is just switch pitchers every inning. so i'm kind of glad it's a little bit more complicated than that but i think right now um you know given how many pitchers they have to use and how many innings they have to cover um, it does seem like you know, Hader is their best guy, but it just seems like you're leaving a whole lot. Yeah, I, I guess when you have that many innings going to the bullpen, somebody in the bullpen is going to have to be the GOAT just because hitters are talented. Eventually, somebody's going to score off somebody. But the way that Milwaukee's going about it, the manager, Craig Council, is going about it, I understand if you have a great deal of confidence that you have four or five bullpen arms that you can pull off this strategy. I, If he has that confidence, great. I just don't share that confidence with him. So your preconceived notion that you're, you're just wanting to absorb it, I'm with you, but I do openly question, does he have the depth to actually pull this off? Because he had Josh Hader almost throw 50 pitches, and now he's not available in game two. And because he's not available in game two, you couldn't hold on a three to nothing lead and you could have left Milwaukee heading to Los Angeles up two games to nothing to ensure that you will be coming back to Milwaukee no matter what after the three games in Los Angeles. Yeah. And in the case of game two, when you don't have hater, I think it becomes a lot more exposed and maybe, you know, you do have to try going with the starter beyond your comfort level. But it, we, I guess we talked about it even going back to last year about Milwaukee and, trying to add their rotation, they didn't, and, uh, you know, getting by the bullpen. I think they're making do with what they have, and I think they've done, you know, incredibly well to get to where they are. But, uh, yeah, just that's the flaw, is that when you use a pater, um, and, and I think 
ideally they'd like to get a place where maybe Hader only has to throw two innings. So he can pitch on back-to-back days. I think that might be the one thing Council considers the rest of the series. But, you know, to win the first game, I think, is a big deal. Um, and, and maybe, you know, using everything you have to win that game is maybe more important than winning game two. I'm not quite sure, but, um, you know, given the... It feels like they're kind of making it up as they go along. I guess every team is, but I think the Brewers more than other teams. It just seems like uh, uh, they're going to be left with these holes in their bullpen going into the next game if they have to you know, go to these emergency measures so soon. So I think, yeah, it's, it's tricky. And I don't envy counsel, and I kind of hope that it doesn't work a little bit just so teams don't have to do it for an entire series, maybe for a game at a time. You know, it, it makes sense, and especially for, like, an elimination game, uh, pulling out all the stops. But, yeah, when you have to pull out the stops every single game, uh, it gets old pretty quickly. And I think, you know, it wears on a team. Eric, you know, we saw that the year before with Andrew Milner or Oldest Chapman getting used up and getting dinged up towards the end of the postseason, kind of the same thing. Well, Wade Miley did pitch very well for the Brewers in Game 2. I mean, he was posting zeros for half that game. And it's just going to be fascinating on what happens for him uh, this offseason if the way that he's been pitching in this postseason will get any teams to throw some serious cash at him. Because uh, this is a guy that was a minor league signing, and here he is throwing up zeros in the postseason. He's pitched 10 scoreless innings so far for Milwaukee. Uh, but I, I do worry about the Brewers as far as with the bullpen. If Hayter's available, then there is no worry, because I'm confident that he's going to be able to hold whatever lead Milwaukee gives him. Uh, but if Hayter's not available... Uh, then I think the Dodgers can capitalize against this Milwaukee bullpen. And it's going to be hard for the Brewers to close out games like we saw in game two. I I just feel like Milwaukee has missed a serious opportunity here, Jim, uh, to win the National League pennant. And I think this losing game two, four to three, is a big blow because heading to Los Angeles now and the Dodgers having some confidence, having confidence against the Milwaukee Brewers, bullpen and with Jeffries publicly saying that some of those hits were lucky and it seems like maybe focus could be an issue for some of the Brewers bullpen I'm not 100% certain this series comes back to Milwaukee because the next time we talk is going to be next Monday and we'll know who will be playing in the World Series how do you feel the rest of this series in the National League is going to play out well, you know, um, given my nature, I like sticking to my predictions. So I think I'll stick with uh, uh, Houston, uh, Los Angeles. But, you know, uh, they did get to Clayton Kershaw and and did get him to uh, add to his postseason misfortune a little bit. So I think, you know, the confidence can swing both ways. And I think all it takes is one bad inning for a team to start questioning their strategy and their bullpen depth and everything like that. So it's, it's going to be a hard-fought series, I think, at both ends. But, yeah. I don't think uh, American League, <laughs> Chris Hale, uh, that's going to be tricky, uh, just how they handle that and, and this whole stomach virus thing or stomach ailment is a new wrinkle. Yeah, so while in the National League we're watching big innings, uh, we are seeing some offense, but in the American League, as you mentioned, Jim, uh, a slugfest between Boston and Houston so far. Uh, with the Boston Red Sox winning game two, seven to five, uh, in which both Garrett Cole and David Price got lit up early in this game. Uh, as far as on Sunday, the series is now tied one to one, and that's good news for the Boston Red Sox because 
Houston was up four to two in game two before uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. cleared the bases with a three RBI triple to give the Red Sox the lead, a lead they would not relinquish. And now the Red Sox tied going to Houston instead of being down 2-0. If they were down 2-0 going to Houston, Jim, I think they would be in serious trouble of not getting back to Boston uh, to continue this series. And Houston would win the American League pennant again on their home field. Uh, but you mentioned as far as Chris Sale and Justin Verlander, a little bittersweet that Chris Sale's first American League championship start is in another uniform other than the White Sox. I know the trade was two years ago, but it's still heartbreaking for me. Uh, he did not wear lawn sleeves, so he fulfilled his promise when he said that he would be wearing short sleeves pitching in a cold weather game in October in the postseason. Uh, but with him now with the stomach ailment, it just seems like it's a stomach virus, maybe like a flu that he's dealing with. Uh, it doesn't sound like from Boston media that Chris Sale is expected to miss game five, which is his next scheduled start. But in his start, four innings, one hit allowed, that's good. Two earned runs allowed only against this dynamic Houston Astros lineup, that's good. He had five strikeouts, but the four walks, is that going to be a concern in his next start? Maybe. Um, yeah, the, the velocity was down. He wasn't getting swinging strikes early. It did seem like he figured out his slider later in the game. He was getting the kind of swings and misses, especially from right-hand batters. Uh, he, he found the more biting slider, the late break which I think is the kind that's easier for him to control you know, rather than the big sweeper. Um, and the, the problem there was he found it a bit too late. He racked up a high pitch count. And so, you know, given that he's coming back from the shoulder injury, given that he's, um, you know, he'll be needed later in the series, it didn't seem like, you know, pushing him to 110, 115 pitch, pitches would have been a great idea. But it, it seemed like maybe he found his release point in an arm slot and you know maybe he can carry that into his next start um i mean i guess i'm not terribly worried about the walks in that case but the velocity i think is still missing it was he got up to 93 i think he did hit 96 once it was kind of sporadic but really not his peak stuff and i think really that might be the bigger case um going forward and he might have to be more of that slider pitcher and he didn't have that slider early and uh, it, that came back to bite him, but I, I think when he's got that release point he had in the fourth and fourth inning, where he's just you know getting those you know, easy uh, slow breakers for strikes early, and then just getting two swinging strikes in the same at bat later with those kind of uh, more darting pitches. It's even when he's got his lesser stuff, we've seen firsthand that that's very hard to deal with. I think in this American League Championship Series, though, for the remaining games in the series. It's going to be about whose offense is better because the Houston Astros have put up seven runs in game one. They put up five runs in game two in the loss. And the Boston Red Sox can only muster two runs against Justin Verlander. That was the difference as Houston ran away with the game late to win 7-2 in game one. But they really came out and were very effective, especially with bases loaded against Garrett Cole. And they put up seven runs in game two. Uh, so we know that the Red Sox can st score against this Houston Astros pitching. Which offense do you have more confidence going against their opponent's pitching staff, Houston or Boston, in the remaining games? I Yeah, I don't think it's a matter of offenses. I would look at it more as a matter of bullpens, and I like Houston's a little bit more. So I put it that way, because uh, you know, I think both offenses are deep and talented and scary and, and 
and modular and in a way that they can attack in a lot of different ways. So it's not so much, yeah, I would take either one happily, but I think uh, Houston might have a better ability just to keep them out of the bullpen and keep their better arms sharper over the course of a full series. Do you think Milwaukee and Boston can win a game on the road? Yes. So you're so for <laughs> both of these series, how many games are you expecting them to go? I think it'll go six for both. You know, I keep counting out Milwaukee and they keep winning, so I should probably be careful about it. I'm more confident Boston getting the series back to Boston than I am with the Brewers getting that series back to Milwaukee. Yeah. If the Brewers, though, can get the series back to Milwaukee, I mean, they play so well at home that that would be troublesome for the Dodgers. I think it's I think the Dodgers should try to close out the series in Los Angeles. Yeah, I can see that. I just think both offenses or I think all four offenses are talented enough to where they can get that one big stunner inning to make it hard to lock down games, you know, even even if. You know, there is a big lead or, you know, a lead that you'd normally be comfortable with. So that's why I think that uh, it will be hard for any team, you know, whether it's the ALCS, NLCS, World Series, to really feel great about winning consecutive games. Well, when we chat again next week, we'll know who will be in the World Series. I think it's going to be a rematch, Houston and Los Angeles. Jim, I assume you're still sticking with your pick before we st- the the postseason began as far as our picks with Houston and Los Angeles as well. Yep. That will be the first time since 1977-78 that we had back-to-back World Series with the same opponents when the New York Yankees beat the Los Angeles Dodgers in both of those World Series. So in our lifetimes, Jim, this would be the first time that we've seen back-to-back World Series of the same teams playing against each other. Well, that's kind of cool. That is cool. I, you know, I would want to see it too often, but you know, once in a while to have two teams so deep that you know they're they, well, one reason or another, whether it's because you're spending like the Dodgers or because you've you know, re- rebuilt as well as the Astros, you know, having those teams that are rewarded for building, um, building for depth and for you know going the distance. Yes, and we'll see who will be in the World Series. Next week, who knows? We could be wrong. It could be Milwaukee and Boston. Uh, There's a lot of offense and a lot more games to be played. Uh, But both series are now tied one game apiece as they head to Los Angeles and Houston. And we look forward to talking about who will be in the World Series next week. But coming up next on the Sox Machine podcast, Jim and I will reconvene to answer your guys' questions in P.O. Sox. But I'll be joined by Patrick Nolan Penals to review the Chicago White Sox 2018 season for the pitching staff. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. We start our 2018 season reviews on the podcast by first looking at the Chicago White Sox pitching staff. Not a good season any way you want to measure it. But with it being a rebuilding year, there was the expectation of bumps and bruises along the way for this staff. However, after this brutal season, is there real concerns about the starting rotation, especially Lucas Giolito's future? And have injuries impacted the White Sox future rotation probables? Well, joining me to help grade the White Sox pitching efforts in 2019 
18 and address those questions is an editor for SoxMachine.com. It's Patrick Nolan, but we know him around these parts as P. Knowles. And hello, P. Knowles. Thanks for joining the show. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me. Joining you from beautiful Nashville, Tennessee. Yes. Nash Vegas, baby. Woo! Oh, yeah. <laughs> Should have played some country music to bump you into the show. <laughs> that would have been nice. <laughs> Let's start with your thoughts on how the 2018 season went for the White Sox pitching staff. I thought that it went uh, pretty poorly. Um, without beating around the bush too much, uh, there was you know a couple of uh, surprising performances. Um, you know, in the bullpen, we get a couple of guys who made themselves available for trade. Uh, the breakout of Jace Fry was a welcome development. And even though I was generally down on Reynaldo Lopez for most of the year, he really did put together a, a fairly convincing stretch down uh, just a couple of months or so. But um, other than those couple of guys, there, there aren't a whole lot of bright spots to hang your hat on, and uh, it's it's been a little concerning. Yeah, we're going to talk about that concern as we are going through the grade. So for all of you that participated on SoxMachine.com or follow me on Twitter at SoxMachine underscore Josh, I have been posting out as far as the survey form for all of you to submit your grades so we're going to run down that grading form. We're going to give our picks, and I will announce what the general consensus is uh, as far as what you, the fans, listeners, voted for. So the first question is, who was the best starting pitcher for the Chicago White Sox in 2018, Penals? Well, I'm going to say uh, Reynaldo Lopez. I mean, he was healthy for the entire year. He gave us um, not quite 200 innings, but, you know, fairly close. Um Generally, he, he outpitched. Uh, his, his results were a little bit better than the quality of his pitching. But that being said, if we're just grading 2018, uh, he, he was effective at keeping runs off the board. And, you know, he perhaps showed some signs that he might be able to do that in future years, particularly with the way he closed the season out. So I'm going to say Lopez was the best pitcher. I agree with that. How concerned are you with the 4.63 season FIP? Um, I'd be more concerned about it if that was representative of the the season as a whole. But since he did start to pick it up in the strikeout department a little bit later on and, and cut back a little bit on the walks as well, um, it, it's it's maybe not as dire as I may may have thought if I just you know took that number without any context. But it was nice to see improvements from him throughout the season, and hopefully he'll be able to build on that and post a better FIP uh, going forward. Yeah, his ERA, though, was sub-4, so he did get some help as far as defensively. But yeah, if he's able to cut his walk per 9, his walk per 9 this year was 3.58. If he's able to cut that by a full walk, sit around 2.5, and and if he could help reduce his home run per 9, then his FIP will be around 4. If he just makes those small, quote-unquote, small adjustments, just small adjustments, Pinos, just reduce one <laughs> walk per outing. Uh, 76.3% of you, our fans and listeners, also picked Ronaldo Lopez with Carlos Rodon coming in second at 19.4%. So overwhelmingly, Ronaldo Lopez was picked for the best starting pitcher for the Chicago White Sox in 2018. So heading to the bullpen, who was the best relief pitcher for the White Sox? And I gave everyone six choices to pick from. Jace Fry, Juan Minaya, Hector Santiago, Nate Jones, and then the guys that were traded, Joaquin Soria and Luis Avalon. Um, I think I, I think my choice would probably be Joaquin Soria. Um, he definitely rebounded from an early 
uh, early start to the season where he, you know, he blew that lead, especially I think a lot of people with that opening day game where he kind of didn't make a very good first impression. And, um, but he, he actually did really recover well from that and built himself into a palatable trade piece. And, uh, you know, he, he generally kept, did a good job of keeping runs off the board and his strikeouts were way high or what his walks were way, way down. And I think that Fry is going to be a popular choice here. I think Soria's numbers were just a little bit better. So I'm going to go with Soria. Well, you would be surprised because Soria was number one. Soria got 48% of the vote to be selected as the best relief pitcher for the White Sox. Chase Fry was second at 47.3%. So a really Whoa. close race. And again, looking at ERA and FIP, Soria, when he was with the White Sox, his ERA was 2.56. His FIP was 2.15, which is really good. That's what you're expecting out of your relievers. And Jace Fry is a totally different story. His ERA is 4.38. That's what you'll see on a TV broadcast. But if you actually dig into the numbers, Jace Fry's FIP was 2.67 penals. So why the big gap there? Um, without being able to dig into it too much off the cuff, I, I think that one thing I'll comment on is that bullpen ERA for bullpen pitchers can be pretty misleading, especially for guys who get pulled mid-inning. I'll have to take a look at the numbers at some point, but it's possible that some of Fry's, uh, Fry may have bequeathed some base runners that uh, came around to score on somebody else's watch. Um, it's also possible that the discrepancy is just due to bad luck, but um, for, you know, for relievers, I'm more inclined to put stock in the fifth number than the ERA number. Yeah, the, his ground ball rate was terrific. It was 45% ground ball rate for Jace Fry. And he's going to need that because his home run fly ball rate was 10%. So if he's going to live at 10%, he's going to need to throw or induce more ground balls uh, moving forward to be effective major leaguer. So as far as the best of awards, best starting pitcher for Pinoles is Ronaldo Lopez and best reliever is Joaquin Soria. He is going with the majority. And moving over now to the grades. And this looking ahead and peaking penals is interesting on how White Sox fans are looking at evaluating as far as the 2018 season per individual. And we'll start with the best starting pitcher of 2018, Ronaldo Lopez. On a grading scale of A to F, what grade would you give Lopez for 2018? I think I would probably give him a B. Um, and I, I generally, when I think of grades, usually I I, it kind of split up into the plus, the regular and the minus. I usually consider average to be somewhere around the C plus C border. And I think on this scale, we'll just call C average. So I'll say B, he probably uh, in aggregate surpassed expectations, um, not to such a degree that, um, you know, I'm over, overly enthusiastic that we have like a number one and number two starter on our hands. Um, but he definitely, um, you know, against a lot of things that I said earlier in the year, he did actually build himself into about a league average pitcher over the course of the season. And I think with more room for optimism, especially given that uh, he was better at the end of the year than the beginning. So I'm going to go with a B. Yeah, the fans and listeners agree with you. 78.1% gave Ronaldo Lopez a B. 13.3% gave Lopez a C. And then 8.2% gave Lopez an A. So no Ds or Fs for Ronaldo Lopez on the voting, which is a bit promising for White Sox starting pitchers. And that's kind of when it ends because the next starting pitcher is someone we didn't get a chance to see a lot of in 2018. And when we did get to see him, 
Uh, it seemed like we saw two different versions of this starting pitcher, and that's Carlos Rodon. Carlos Rodon had a terrific stretch penals uh, for eight weeks, it seemed like. And then his final month of the year, he just lost command and control of his pitches and saw his walk per nine just balloon. Uh, Carlos Rodon's walk per nine at the end of 2018 was 4.10, and his strikeout per nine is 6.71. So, not a typical season that we would be expecting to see from Carlos Rodon, but on a scale of A to F, what grade would you give Rodon? He's a, he's such an enigma because um, on the one hand, it was nice to see him come back and, and just be healthy and finish the season. Uh, but the other, on the other hand, you know, I, I expected maybe he'd be a little erratic and walk some guys, but that strikeout number, he was only walk. He was only striking out less than seven guys per nine innings. And, you know, I'm a big fan of expected weighted on base average. Um, the, the metric that kind of takes into account um, the quality of contact and, and Rodon, he really wasn't inducing very hard contact, but I, I don't know what to make of the message that this guy's stuff is so good that, um, you know, hitters aren't able to hit it that hard, but it's, not good enough that he can get a lot of swings and misses. So um, I think that quite a bit is going to, there's going to be something that unfolds there. And one of those two messages is going to prevail in the future. Um, But for the time being, I think that because he was so uneven, because he didn't strike out too many guys, he did walk a good amount of guys. um, I'm probably going to wind up just giving him no better than a C. Um, He can see a little bit on a curve just because he's coming back from injury. um, But I don't think I could go any higher than that. You don't have his season didn't raise any alarms though that you're worried long term about him right or is this something that White Sox fans do have to be paying attention to heading to 2019 for Carlos Rodon? Oh, I, I definitely am worried about him. I mean, anytime that you have a guy who's got a uh, you know wipeout slider and a fastball, he's, he has historically been able to use to blow people away up in the zone, and, and you see it. Um, you know, a notable reduction in those strikeouts that I think that does set off some alarm bells. And I think that that's something to watch. So yeah, I I think I am a little concerned and I'm going to want to see that number come up before I start to feel great about him again. Okay. Fans 54.1% gave Carlos Herdan a B. So they are a little more optimistic than you or Pinos as far as Herdan's season. 36.2% gave Herdan a C and then the third highest grade was a D for Carlos Rodon. So Carlos Rodon did get some D votes, about 5.7% in 2018. So moving for Rodon to somebody that I'm not entirely sure he's going to be back with the White Sox. That was one of the questions that we asked as far as the pitchers review survey. And we'll get to that in a moment. But it's about James Shields. What grade would you give the veteran after his 2018 season? Well, I think that uh, James Shields' primary purpose um, as a member of the White Sox was to eat innings around a bunch of prospects um, whose you know, arm strength and innings total were kind of going to be uncertain as the year went on. And, you know, Shields did that. He, he did through 204 innings at the beginning of the season. Some of them looked like they were maybe going to be higher quality innings, but uh, the, the ultimate numbers uh, didn't wind up looking all that favorably on James Shields. Um, I'd say that if you know we had higher expectations on Shields, my grade might be lower than this. But I'm I'm inclined to give him a C because he more or less um, he he more or less did the job that we had him set out to do. Yeah, and the fans agree with you. Fifty four point eight percent gave James Shields a C, with twenty seven point two percent giving him a B. So a little higher on Shields after the 2018 season. And I think you hit it right on the head. 
Pinos as far as fans' point of view. He's, he ate a lot of innings this year, 204 Point two thirds innings in 2018 when just a handful of pitchers in 2018 across Major League Baseball threw more than 200 innings this year. What's funny is that his FIP and and his expected FIP, these two numbers are rarely the same. They were the same for him. His FIP was 5.09 and his expected FIP was 5.09 penals. Oh, well, say nothing about James Shields, except that he gives up exactly as many home runs as he's supposed to give up. <laughs> uh, well, the follow-up question to James Shields and something that we asked our fans and listeners, and the question is simple, P. Knowles, because I am assuming the White Sox are going to decline his $16 million option. Should the White Sox bring James Shields back for 2019? Um, I'm inclined to say no. Um, I I think that he's kind of endeared himself to White Sox fans and to to some degree he's, um, you know, kind of established himself as a mentor, but I I think it's time that they move on and try to set their sights a little bit higher. You know, this isn't going to be another season where we're just trying to plug a gap with a Miguel Gonzalez or a James Shields. Um, you might need a guy like that, but it's also possible that you could, you know, get a couple of minor league signings to do the same and, and kind of create some space for somebody, um, you know, like Dylan Cease to come up in the rotation at some point later that next year. I think that ideally I would have the White Sox, um, you know, target somebody higher profile and then maybe just try to tread water with somebody who um, can easily be punted from the rotation uh, when the need arises or, you know, even, even use internal options because, you know, a guy like Jordan Stevens, he, he's not getting, I don't know if he's the most exciting option in the world, but he's certainly not getting any younger. And he's at least made for part of the season was making a pretty decent case at triple Yeah. And you also have Spencer Adams and Jordan Guerrero, right? These three pitchers we've been talking about for quite some time. They're all in Charlotte. Some of them have had moments of success that the White Sox could, could test out and try out if they don't want to spend any money in free agency on top tier starting pitcher. So moving from James Shields, so so far, Renato Lopez, B, Carlos Rodon, C, James Shields, C. How about Lucas Giolito after his 2018 season penals? Uh, I am going to give Lucas Giolito an F, uh, mostly because if we don't give Lucas Giolito an F, I'm not sure what an F looks like. (laughs) Well, that's a good point. I mean, his season ERA was 6.13. His FIP was 5.56. The walks, the the walk rate, 4.67 per nine. And I feel like that number got a lot better over the course of the season. Where do the White Sox go from here, Pinos, with Lucas Giolito? Because as you astutely pointed out during the season, the reason that he stayed with Chicago all year is because he only has one option left. And you don't want to burn that option. Uh, in case that you do need to send him to Charlotte in 2019, is that realistic I mean, what do we need to see from Giolito from spring training? Because he had a terrific spring training uh, in 2018, and it didn't go anywhere when the regular season started. Yeah, I think it's just no matter if he has a good spring training, he's just got to bring that north with him to Chicago. Um, And I think that when they tried to preserve that option, I think that maybe they were thinking, okay, so maybe in 2019 – we're going to be a contending team. And, and just in case things go south with Giolito, we kind of want to have the option to stash him in Charlotte and not just lose him because we're worried about what he's doing to a potentially successful team. I, I think that given Kopech going down for Tommy John surgery 
and the the general lackluster play of the 2018 White Sox, I don't know that that's necessarily such a concern anymore. And I really believe that they are most likely going to try to let Giolito struggle through, uh, you know, the things that have been going wrong with him in the major leagues. Uh, but you, you've seen it as well as I have all year. Um, there's the starts where he just can't get out of the first inning. The command is sometimes just erratic. He's often only got one pitch working for him. And it, it's kind of weird. It was spent most of the season switching off which pitch it was that would actually be successful that he would have to use to, to try to set up his lesser successful offerings. Um, so he, he just kind of had a rough go, didn't miss a ton of bats and the results, as you've already pointed out, were, were pretty disastrous. So, um, it, it was a bad season for Lucas Giolito and I'm, I'm hoping that he can find a way to turn it around because he did have maybe, you know, six or so starts in there where it looked like he was trying to turn the page and then he went back to his old ways. Yeah. The fans gave Lucas Giolito a D 50.5% of the fans gave Giolito a D 33.7% agreed with you penals in giving Giolito an F. So that's the starting pitching front moving over to the bullpen. And instead of going to each individual grading this as a unit on an A to F scale, what grade would you give the White Sox bullpen in 2018? You know, this is probably going to surprise some people, but I'm actually going to give it a B. I know that the bullpen was a sticking point for a lot of people during the course of the season, but I mean, the fact of the matter is you had three pitchers who, and I might be forgetting somebody, but at least three I can think of, you know, that pitched themselves into a situation where they were desirable trade assets. That's about as as great as you could possibly expect. Obviously, Soria was great. Um, You know, the breakout of Jace Fry, uh, and I am calling it a breakout despite that (laughs) 4.38 ERA. I I think he established himself as a piece that's going to be here for a while. And on a team where there really weren't any surprises besides besides him and and possibly Daniel Palka that really um, cemented themselves as that kind of player, um, that that was a really welcome sight. And I know that we spent a, a good amount of time with, you know, guys like, you know, Chris Volstad and then, you know, the, the odd Tyler Danish in there and then Bruce Rondon and all that fiasco. Yeah. I mean, there were some bad guys that filtered in and out, but you figured that would happen. So I think that all in all the bullpen, which actually finished, I think around 10th in the majors in fan war for bullpens, which is surprising. I think that they more or less did yep. their job and I was happy with them. So I'm going to say B. Yeah, I'm surprised on how the fans and listeners went because they gave the bullpen a D. 47% of the fans and listeners gave the bullpen a D grade. 41.2% gave the bullpen a C. I'm with you, P. Knowles. The bullpen was a lot better for the White Sox pitching staff in 2018 than the starters. I don't know if they're going to be able to sustain this success going into 2019 I thought Juan Minaya was a much different pitcher in the second half of this year than the first half. I do think that there is something there that could be built on for the White Sox. You do have your Ian Hamilton. Caleb Frere showed some promise uh, in a few of his outings. Ryan Burr is interesting. There's something that the White Sox have going on in the bullpen. I just don't know if they have a complete unit, and I'm pretty sure that Rick Hahn is going to have to find Again, guys like Xavier Cedeno and Joaquim Soria that you mentioned, guys that he can acquire and flip for 
wildcard prospects to see if any of them are intriguing enough that could that could possibly pan out. Um, but still quality arms that can help you during the course of the season. Uh, so I, I, I'm not exactly sure where the disconnect is with the fans and listeners. Maybe it is from on how the season started with Joaquin Soria blowing that save and all the blown saves at the early beginning of the year. But when you do look at the numbers and you compare the White Sox bullpen to all across Major League Baseball, uh, this is a surprising unit, uh, and especially the way that they performed. And again, a few of these guys are going to be joining the White Sox in 2019, and hopefully this unit can be strong at the beginning of the season, especially if you are one hoping that the White Sox can surprise next season. Now there's the bullpen, and there's how they were handled. And the next question is, what grade would you give manager Rick Renteria managing the White Sox bullpen in 2018? Um, yeah, I'm kind of straddling the C defense on here. Um, I don't think that it was absolutely catastrophic. I, I think that there were some weird decisions in there. Like in the second half, he had this weird John Mark Gomez fetish that I didn't fully understand. Um, he, I, I think that he had a good sense over the course of the season, which guys were actually his best relievers. And I think that generally he, you know, he, he, he elevated Jace Fry to a prominent role relatively early and that worked out well. Um, similarly, I give him credit for recognizing that Juan Minaya in the second half was one of his more reliable relievers. And it didn't take Minaya, you know, too many appearances before he, he actually settled into that higher leverage role. But sometimes you had Renneria just, swapping guys in and out like crazy within an inning, which, you know, sometimes there's, there's value in it. And sometimes it it strikes me as panic managing. And I I think that he'll probably, um, he'll probably have to work on trying to find a better balance between too many changes and not enough. Um, So I'd I'd say between a C and a D, I don't think it was too terrible, um, but uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't the best either. Yeah, the fans gave Rick Renteria a C for managing the bullpen, 42.7%. 34.8% gave Renteria a D. So the fans are with you, Pinoles, straddling that line. So we go from Rick Renteria managing the bullpen to some critical questions that are going to be approached for the White Sox coming to this offseason. Uh, one of them was during the season, and I don't think there was this much of an outcry but I wanted to gauge to see if there was any buyer's remorse from White Sox fans regarding Michael Kopech. And the question that we asked was, was calling Michael Kopech up the right move? How do you feel in hindsight now, knowing that he only made four starts and the White Sox have lost him for all of 2019? It was absolutely the right move. Um, for the same reason that I was indignant about the handling of Eloy Jimenez, uh, there was no reason that Michael Kopech should have spent the entire year in the minor leagues. And I mean, I was on record saying he should have been up even a long time before he did get called up. And just because something happened, which was completely unforeseeable, uh, does not change the logic behind the decision. Uh, it was the correct move to promote him. And I will stand by that in any discussion you want. The last two questions we have in our survey are definitely looking towards the future. And one, because again, Rick Hahn has mentioned at his season in press conference that the White Sox are going to be looking into this offseason on adding a couple of starting pitchers, maybe, and also perhaps addressing the bullpen, either in free agency or trade. And asking fans and listeners, how should the White Sox fill their missing spots of the rotation? Because we talked about Stevens, Guerrero, and Adams. There are some internal options that the White Sox could use to replace a James Shields and replace the injured Michael Kopech 
for the starting rotation in 2019. And between free agency and trade and going with internal options, where do you reside, P. Knowles, as far as those two options to fill in the missing spots in the rotation? Yeah, so it's, it, the way the way I'm looking at it is with with Giolito, Lopez, and Rodon pretty much locks to begin the rotation at the beginning of the year. I think that they should they should acquire one significant arm in free agency or trade. Um, and I'm talking about a guy who's not just there to eat innings to protect the young guys. I'm talking about a guy who you legitimately expect to be a good pitcher that has a very high chance to be one of your starters when you want to compete. So I'm, I, and I don't know, it doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, one or two necessarily, but somebody who you think can tread water in a rotation that you're happy, uh, you know, with a team that's going to be competing. Um, the other one, I would say probably rely on internal options or maybe just a, a cheap minor league free agents here or there. Um, I, I, I know that I might get derided for this a little bit, but I, I honestly don't mind the idea of putting Dylan Kobe in the rotation again. And if he doesn't work out, starting with some of those AAA arms that you mentioned, uh, I, I don't think that's the worst option in the world. And it would at least give some exposure to some guys just to see, hey, you know, these guys look like they can cut it. And these guys look like they can't cut it. Um, so that would be my preferred option, getting one established good pitcher and then using the other spot to try to, you know, try a few guys out. Do you have a target? Is there someone that comes off the top of your mind that you would like the White Sox to go after? You know, I'm going to be researching this in depth through my offseason plan, um, but Patrick Corbin really strikes me as a guy who would make a good deal of sense. Um, I, I, I'm couching this by saying I have not done a huge, deep, deep dive on Patrick Corbin other than knowing that he's good and he's available and he's likely to cost less than, well, let's say, Clayton Kershaw would would cost. So um, that, that's, that's, he seems like sure. somebody who, who could be attained that is also a good pitcher. So I, I'll just throw his name out there. Yeah. How fascinating is this free agent market going to be when, if the rumors are true and Clayton Kershaw opts out of his deal, that suddenly changes a lot of teams' minds and how they want to throw their money around. Having the opportunity to go after a Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, and Clayton Kershaw just be outrageous following as far as their markets. And of course, you know, perhaps could help out Patrick Corbin's market and you still got Dallas Keuchel out there, uh, but it's not exactly a deep free agent pool when it comes to starting pitching as far as finding help in that area or significant help. It may have to come through trade. And I'm really interested to see what people's thoughts are when the offseason plans start after the World Series. This brings us to the final question, and this is more of a future outlook. And I'm a bit surprised on the response to this. And it's a on a scale of one to five, where one is not confident at all, and five is absolutely confident. And the question is, P. Knowles, how confident are you in the White Sox pitching depth? Um, well, I think I'm going to have to toe the middle and say three. Um, my reason being that obviously it was a horrendous year for the pitching depth, both in terms of injuries and you know, Renelo Lopez kind of saved this a little bit with his surge at the end, but obviously everything that happened to Giolito was bad news. And, you know, Rodon not really being all that great was, uh, was also kind of a ding there. But at the same time, if you look around Major League Baseball, I think that there are still a lot of organizations that can have the level of starting pitching depth that the White Sox, not the starting pitching depth, but overall pitching depth uh, that the White Sox have amassed. So even though it was a bad year for them, I, I, I'm hesitant from getting too, too close to the not confident bubble, so I'm going to say three. 
Yeah, I agree with you on the three, and so do the fans. 38% of the fans gave it themselves a three as far as in the confidence level. 30.8%, so the second most group, is a two out of five. And that was surprising because I figured yeah. that there would be people still optimistic about the White Sox rebuild, still optimistic, especially on the pitching front, especially on the season that Dylan Cease had. And even though he got hurt, Dane Dunning was pitching very well. Uh, but no, it, there's still people that are towing the line. I'm not a, you know shocked that three is not the most popular answer. Um, but I am shocked that it's leaning towards the closer to the one than it is the five. There are more people that gave it a one out of five than five out of five. Uh, so it be interesting to see on how that alters people's minds. Again, we will have the offseason plans after the World Series where you get the opportunity to become the White Sox GM and you share to the White Sox universe as far as your ideas on how Rick Hahn should handle the offseason and how the White Sox should be building their team for 2019 and beyond. But this concludes our 2018 pitching review for the Chicago White Sox of the 2018 season. And Patrick, it is an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining the show. Thank you for doing this. And again, you can follow Pinoles on Twitter at SoxMock underscore Pinoles. And before I let you go, because I know that you're in the bachelorette capital of the world. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite country artist? Gosh, I'm not really that much of a, I'm not really that big into country. Um, I, I generally like Zach Brown band. So I'll just say that. All right. That's, that's, that's the only band that I know of in country. I'm not a big country music follower, but <laughs> I know, I know chicken fried. You can't hear it. if you, you hear it all the time during batting practice, wherever you go, as far <laughs> as whatever level uh, that you watch. But anyways, Pinoles, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. I had fun. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, it's your guys' questions in P.O. Socks. Before we answer your questions on P.O. Socks, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. Getting tickets online can be far too complicated. With hundreds of sites and varying levels of reliability, it's hard to know who to trust, and that's why SeatGeek is the way to go. SeatGeek pulls millions of tickets into one place, so you can easily find the seats you want for a price you're willing to pay. There's nothing quite like being there in person and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. Every purchase on SeatGeek is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. And by making SeatGeek your go-to ticket source, you can get everything from sports, concerts, to comedy and theater. I use SeatGeek all season long with the Chicago White Sox because it's by far the easiest way i found to shop for tickets. You can also use SeatGeek for Chicago Bears tickets. That's a hot ticket right now in the city or any comedy and theater. You got to look ahead as far as the winter months, especially if there are any big shows that you're looking to get tickets for. The best part is Sox Machine listeners get to save $20 off your first purchase. All you have to do is download the SeatGeek app onto your smartphone or visit SeatGeek.com and use promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code SOXMACHINE to save $20 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. SeatGeek, life's an event. We have the tickets. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. 
Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show, where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Socks Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine, and posting questions on patreon.com slash Socks Machine, where you can help become a friend of the podcast by supporting the show and the website. And rejoining me on the podcast to answer your questions is Jim Margulis. And Jim, the first question we have for you comes from Jared Allen. And Jared is asking, if the rebuild plateaus and the White Sox don't find the postseason success they are looking for, how long do you anticipate this team surviving the low attendance and TV ratings? Would you expect a move to another city if this trend continues going forward? Well, I, I kind of, uh, I will step up to, I guess, uh, uh, de-escalate any kind of alarm when it comes to relocation because I don't believe that's in the future. I think MLB wants to go to 32 teams. I don't think they would go down a Chicago team, I think if the White Sox ever moved, a team with a, a worse stadium and market situation would happily move to Chicago. So I don't see a move in the future. And I look to the Indians as a good uh, comparison to just how strong the Chicago market naturally is and how it could be if the White Sox were any kind of competent for any kind of sustained period of time. Because looking at the Indians, they only drew 1.9 million fans this year, and they were ninth in the American League in attendance. Uh, during the stretch of the Terry Francona era where they've had you know, uh, every season over 500, winning AL Central uh, multiple times in a row, going to the World Series, they only cracked 2 million in one year. And they're down 100,000 fans, even though they had high hopes this year and that they were uh, you know, uh, on the road to winning the Central again, only drew 1.9 million. If you look at the White Sox during their like, closest thing to a um, similar run, which was in 2005-2007, they drew 2.5 three, 2.9 and 2.7 million in those years. And that's just one year with a playoff appearance. And that 2.3 million came, you know, uh, in, before they won the world series before like a postseason guaranteed. I mean, they were running away with the division until the Indians tightened it up lately, but usually the big attendance bump comes the year after the world series. So the fact that they got to 2.3 million that year suggests that if the white Sox ever had a team, you know, worth believing in, uh, that the attendance would heal itself, and that if you could get to the postseason two times in a row ever, that you would get that healthier season ticket base, you know, kind of uh, uh, be a cheaper, um, you know, be an in-demand ticket and a cheap alternative to, you know, for the season tickets and for the corporate tickets uh, to the Cubs, and they would be fine. So I think it's just more a matter of, you know, this 10-year postseason drought uh, kind of, you know, scaring everybody. But I think, you know, if the White Sox move somewhere else, uh, and were this bad a team, they wouldn't draw that well either. They wouldn't have the corporate advantages that being in Chicago has, the market value or the um, team value that the market inherently provides the White Sox. They wouldn't find that elsewhere. So it just doesn't seem like, you know, I can't see any reason why the White Sox are moving. I think, you know, given the state of MLB economics and how much money teams make uh, before a fan even enters the uh, ballpark, you know, due to streaming deals, due to national TV deals, um, you know, maybe that bubble will burst at some point, but right now there really aren't, um, you know, making money off fans in the stadium. So I think the White Sox, if they're struggling um, and, and kind of bottoming out on purpose, I think that's the reason why a lot of teams do bottom out on purpose now is because they don't need attendance as much to have a healthy bottom line. So I, I don't see uh, this 
downswing really jeopardizing the franchise in any way. And I think, uh, um, you know, given Jerry Reinsdorf's loyalty, um, that uh, he doesn't feel too pressured by it either. So, yeah, I, I don't see any kind of existential threat because of the struggling. I think it'd just be more a matter of just getting used to 1.5 million until they actually prove that they were worth attending. I agree with you that I don't think the White Sox are going to leave Chicago. I am not particularly confident that they're always going to stay at 35th and Shields. Yeah. I just don't know what the market will be in Illinois and, you know, just overall in sports, given that you know, the more you know about taxpayer-funded stadiums and how bad of a deal they are for the public, yeah, I do wonder just how, you know, how the appetite will be unless it's a different owner negotiating it and they're more willing to put in their money. Right, right. Will they stay on the South Side? Will we continue to be called Southsiders in a decade? I'm not sure, but I'm pretty confident they're going to stay in Chicago. They could move to the West Loop. They could move out to the suburbs. I'm sure they will ask Illinois for money <laughs> to build a new stadium uh, in 10 to 15 years once the agreement has expired. Uh, that's the current agreement right now. Uh, but I agree with you, Jim. I don't think that the White Sox are going to be leaving Illinois. If you are a fan base wanting to sweat a little bit, if you're going to be losing your team, that fan base is the Oakland Athletics. Coming from Las Vegas, there's a lot of rumors. They're tearing down the Rio Hotel, and it sounds like developers are trying to lure Major League Baseball for that land after they demolish the hotel and resort. Oakland just claimed the AAA affiliate in Las Vegas, and the winter meetings are in Las Vegas, in which you'll have all of Major League Baseball's executives and all of Major League Baseball's owners in one sitting. So if Las Vegas really wanted to wow Major League Baseball in this idea of tearing down this hotel and resort and giving Major League Baseball prime real estate in Las Vegas to move a team if I were the Oakland, if I was an Oakland A's fan, I'd be a little bit worried because I know it's been troublesome, and I know the league has been increasing pressure, Jim, on them finding a new location to build a stadium. And it just doesn't appear that there's many options for ownership in Oakland to keep the A's in Oakland. No, that's a good point. And but yeah, between the the, the Rays and the A's, and you know, markets that just don't draw that well, even when teams are doing well, it's just hard to see. Um, a team doing, you know, a competent team, uh, a team that has hopes <laughs> doing it better than anywhere uh, besides uh, a second team in Chicago, you know, besides any weaker markets, uh, emerging markets. I just don't think it's there. But Jared, thank you so much for your question. Definitely something to think about in the upcoming future. Our next question comes from Johan Dobrinsky and Johan is asking another question about TV. Does the TV deal expire after next year? And do you think that affects the rebuild as far as setting a marker for next year to show the White Sox are on target? Uh, it does expire after next year. And it, yeah, I think it's in the White Sox interest to have the arrow pointing up. I don't think they could you know, another hundred loss season or even 95 and no measurable progress. I don't think that helps the negotiating stance. The one thing in their favor and, and also maybe the one thing you know, acting as a, a centralizing force is that they should be negotiating with other teams. You know, it won't be just the White Sox. It'll be the Bulls and, you know, we'll see with the Blackhawks too. Whereas the Cubs, if they're branching on their own, if they're going for their own network without any, 
you know, other teams joining them. Uh, I think that's the case where a lot would be riding on the individual franchise fortunes and the White Sox would really not, not be in a position to, uh, to, uh, tempt, uh, or, or really, you know, demand high entrance fees for cable packages with a, a team that has a, a ratings that begins with zero. So it's, uh, I, I don't think it's as important for the White Sox to, you know, I guess go from, you know, 62 wins to try to get in the high 70s, you know, try to manufacture something with a, with a major buy that could compromise, um, you know, the short-term forts of the team, like we saw with the Samarja, Melky, Robertson era White Sox. I do think they, they're in a position to add some, you know, whether it's blocked prospects or, uh, you know, absorb some veteran contracts from elsewhere. Um, you know, nothing that uh, jeopardized the long-term picture, but they can add to the payroll in the short term and try to get some value out of it that way. Um, and, and, you know, that and some developing prospects could get them to the 70s themselves, but I don't think they'll try to force it because um, I think the long-term value of the franchise and, and value towards uh, a TV deal is going to be on Mancada and Jimenez and uh, Lopez and, and, you know, Tim Anderson, all these, you know, these um, cornerstones of the rebuild, I think. Um, you know, that's how they'll be able to pitch it and how they'll be able to angle it and how they'll be able to build around it. And then the rest will be with what teams join them. Yeah, the Bulls are not good either. I know they're a global brand, and people will continue to watch the Bulls, but they're not very good. Uh, so it's not like it's not like the White. It's not like Jerry Reinsdorf's teams are are doing very well right now and giving fans a lot of reasons to to watch them. Uh, you know, what do you make of the idea of the Wirtz family possibly being? next in line to buying the White Sox? Uh, I mean, as an idea or... As an idea. Because obviously the Reinstor family, you know, for a long time have been working with the Wirtz family as far as television deals and, and sharing an arena. That the Reinstor family has no interest after Jerry to continue running the organization that the Wirtz family steps up and buys the White Sox. You know, whether it's feasible, I, you know, I don't quite know about their, you know, I guess whether they I mean, can they're add, rich. They've got the money yeah. they want to. Yeah, or at least, you know, become majority owners or whatever. But right. uh, I do like their deal that they have with bars around Chicago, you know, that they become kind of the exclusive, the Blackhawks bar deal, you know, packaging it with their uh, beverage um, business and, you know, offering bars deals to become like exclusive carriers of Blackhawks games when the Blackhawks are on. <laughs> Having a similar deal with the White Sox, um, you know, for bars could be pretty awesome. Um, and, and, you know, when I'm in Chicago during the winter, um, you know, that, that Blackhawks deal does make a difference. And, you know, just seeing how hard it is sometimes to find a Bulls game uh, in a public, you know, viewing area like that. So, you know, I wouldn't mind it from that, you know, regard. Um, and, you know, they've obviously marketed, uh, you, know, you know, had a lot of great uh, uh victories with the Blackhawks, not only for team success, but also just kind of capturing the town um, in, in a way that, you know, in, I guess, a similar situation that uh, the old ownership became stale and, and shot itself in the foot in a lot of ways and, and were their own worst enemies. Uh, you could draw similar things, you know, with the White Sox and Reinsdorf, although not to the degree of never airing home games. So, you know, there's nothing quite, they're not digging out of that hole or have a solution so easy, easily available to them, but uh, there are ways to uh, definitely freshen up the approach and, um, you know, regain some credibility in a hurry. 
Well, our next question comes from one of our Patreon supporters, from Mark Hope. Mark, thank you for your support. Mark is asking, in 15 years, whose White Sox legacy will be more notable, Yoan Makata or Jason Benetti? That's a good question because I, I start thinking about it and I thought naturally that you know, broadcasters generally do. It's especially you know, a young guy like Benetti who you know, has roots in the area from there, White Sox fan. Um, you wouldn't expect him to go anywhere you know, in, in most cases. And you think about you know, the broadcasters in the past, like you know, even before Hawk with Harry Carey, with Bob Elson, just you know, these voices that stick with people for a long time. And just kind of shape the way they interpret the game. And, you know, for all we've seen about Hawk and, and uh, you know, what we know about uh, the White Sox and how we think about baseball and how, you know, the language in our brains while we're watching plays develop comes from Hawk in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the next generation will be, you know, Benetti. So I think, you know, it's, it's hard for one player, uh, unless they're really good, like, you know, comparing like Maglia or Ordonez to Hawk, you know, Hawk beats him, even though Maglio is really good. You know, it takes a great player, like, say, like a Frank Thomas type or a Mark Burley type, I think, to really um, stand out over um, a broadcaster who's there for the long haul. The question is, I guess, you know, maybe this is the question uh, underneath it all is, you know, whether Jason Benetti will get too big for the White Sox, just, you know, with his uh, high-profile assignments, you know, uh, his work with ESPN, uh, his work with – MLB, that StatCast broadcast that he did, uh, I think was a lot of people's first exposure to him. Uh, and I think, you know, especially along analytic circles and fan, you know, fans like us who like dealing with advanced numbers and such, I think he made a positive impression. And, you know, he could be somebody who does become that kind of national uh, voice, like like a Boob Skiambi. Um You know, so I could see that being his future, and maybe he just becomes too big. He becomes more of a voice of all seasons, or voice for all seasons, uh, for national, um, you know, national carriers, and, and maybe the White Sox just can't quite com- compete with those assignments. So that'd be the one case where maybe he doesn't stick around long enough, uh, even if it is his hometown team. And so he just maybe hangs around for like five to ten years, and ultimately is more of just kind of a footnote uh, among White Sox broadcasters. What do you think of Brian Anderson? Not the baseball player, but the baseball broadcaster. He's currently calling the American League Championship Series. I like him better than Ernie Johnson. Um, I, I know Ernie Johnson, he wasn't available to do it. I think he's, he's got health issues. and um, yeah, But I think when it comes to Ernie Johnson, he's, just, he's a basketball guy first. He's a great basketball voice, a great studio guy. I thought his, his baseball play-by-play was lacking. So I think Anderson, I think, has brought relief to that. Um, you know, and Ron Darling's been better with him. So I like him well enough, I would say. It doesn't really stand out, but I think I've seen um, – you know, worse and more awkward calls a national broadcast. And I think he does a good job keeping it going, but he doesn't really stand out to me in one way or another. I I asked this question because he is the television voice of the Milwaukee Brewers, and he's been doing it for quite some time. He has been calling as far as NCAA tournament basketball games because of his deal with Turner and CBS Broadcasting. Uh, this is somebody that, you know, goes from, you know, his play-by-play duties during the Major League Baseball season, and he still does other sports. And it sounds like that he's not going to deviate away from the Milwaukee Brewers. And I I wonder if that's going to be the case with Jason Benetti, even though he has a lot of broadcasting with ESPN, and now he's doing radio for the National Football League. uh, I I still think he's going to come back and still do White Sox games. I could be wrong. 
Yeah, no, that would be my guess too, leading it. But I could see, you know, when the question was posed, like, you know, it has happened before, um, where just um, you know, the national assignments become too big, and um, you know, they just end up moving on. It's hard to <laughs> hard to argue with being, you know, the voice for national baseball if you have a chance to do so. So. I wouldn't rule it out. I, I think, you know, if I had to bet money on it, I'd bet with Benetti staying for the foreseeable future. But when the question was posed and thinking about it, what would be the one case where it'd be really tough for a player, you know, normally it's very tough for any kind of, you know, good player to overcome the legacy of a broadcast, I think, in people's minds. I think one way it would be, you know, I was trying to think of flipping it around, like how would a player beat it, either by, by being great or the broadcaster not sticking around. And Benetti, given that he has other jobs, yeah, that's, I guess, a possibility. Hmm. True. And Yohan Mikata, we don't know if he's going to stay beyond his seven years with the White Sox. Yeah, that too. Great question, Mark. And that will do it for this edition of P.O. Sox Questions. Terrific questions this week, guys. Thank you so much for taking the time to submit your questions into the show. If you have a question for a future edition of the podcast, Again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine. And help support the show and the website by becoming a friend of the podcast by signing up at patreon.com slash Sox Machine, where our listeners get additional content every single week. This week, they get additional P.O. Sox questions answered that Jim and I tackled. If you're interested in getting extra content from us, again, go to patreon.com slash Machine to sign up today. Next week, we will be reviewing the Chicago White Sox hitters, both the infield and outfield. So look out for that survey to get your thoughts on how well the White Sox infield and outfielders did in 2018 on SoxMachine.com. And we'll also look forward to previewing the World Series of 2018 on next week's show. But thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the podcast, you can subscribe in a couple of ways. One is through iTunes. Another is through Spotify. We're on Google Podcasts. And of course, audioboom.com slash Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.